I've seen virtually every imaginable scenario restored by the grace of God. The gospel is powerful. God's word does, as John Frame says, what only God can do. Friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm so glad you're here to join in on today's conversation with Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Today we'll be discussing Jim's book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Critical Questions and Answers. This conversation is going to focus specifically on discovering gospel hope and help for the hurting marriage, addressing some of the common challenges that couples face. We'll be talking about working through issues of bitterness, communication breakdowns, marital indifference, and wisdom for deciding when to seek marriage counseling. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Jim Neuheiser is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of Christian Counseling and Pastoral Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and an adjunct professor of Biblical Counseling at the Master's College. Furthermore, Dr. Neuheiser serves as a board member at both the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Jim has been married to his wife, Caroline, for many years, and they have three adult children. Hey there, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be there. I am so thankful for the chance to talk to you about the topic of hurting marriages because you have personally counseled me and my husband in the past, and we both have come to cherish time spent in your counseling office. In fact, you've been counseling married couples for over 38 years and have drawn on your decades of experience to write a fantastic resource entitled Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Critical Questions and Answers. Do you mind spending a few moments explaining why you wrote the book and how it aims to help pastors counsel? counselors and couples with the hope and help of God's Word? Yeah. Well, I had the privilege of writing the book. Originally, I guess it was supposed to be in a question and answer series, which has now become a freestanding book. But a friend invited me to write the book in light of this experience. And then I just found it a great privilege to kind of take everything I've learned from the scriptures and in teaching, preaching, counseling for so many years and kind of put it all in one place. Uh, The first half of the book is 20 questions about marriage, and it begins with defining marriage biblically and then uh, how to decide whether you're ready to be married, how to decide who to marry. So the beginning part could be used as pre-marriage material. Uh, Tim Challies actually took a couple of the chapters and turned them into blogs on his website as guides for the single people approaching marriage. And then in the latter part of the first 20 questions, and the whole thing is in a question and answer format, pretty brief. It can be read straight through, or it can be kind of used as a reference. The latter half is kind of positively what makes a good marriage, according to the scriptures, the role of the husband and the wife, and communication, and intimacy, and resolving problems. Then the second half of the book is dealing with the challenging issues of divorce and remarriage. It has some similarity to John Murray's book on divorce, I think written in the 60s. Jay Adams wrote a book on marriage and divorce in the 80s. The Bible hasn't changed since then, but there have been issues which have come up. 
especially kind of a broadening of the grounds of divorce. Instone Brewer has written about that and has been gained some followers beyond the traditional or confessional grounds for divorce. So he's kind of broadened it to any, you know, on, on one extreme to almost any breach of the covenant, which John Piper, I think rightly says, would make all of us divorceable. And then the other end extreme has been a permanence view, which actually Piper and some others hold, which in the 60s and the 80s was not as widely propounded as it has been in recent years. And so I also wanted to interact with why people hold that view, hopefully in a charitable way, but also why I think the Bible does teach that there are biblical grounds for divorce, uh, which would be abandonment by an unbeliever and sexual unfaithfulness, and that those who have been biblically divorced can be remarried. So it's kind of, I've even talked to PNR about uh, publishing it as two different books, where the first is marriage and the second is divorce and remarriage, but it's actually a pretty good deal to just get the whole thing together. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed reading through the book and have found it really helpful. I wonder, before we tackle some of the challenging questions we have here today about marriage and remarriage and divorce, let's be sure that we're grounded in what the scriptures have to say, uh, what the role of men and women is in the relationship and how this God-given union is meant to reflect the relationship of Christ and his church. Can you lay a foundation for our conversation by just giving us a quick high-level flyover of those concepts? Sure. Uh, even in the Old Testament, God was presented as the husband to Israel in the covenant relationship. In the New Testament, you have Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And that, I think, is probably the most powerful argument for a complementarian view of marriage in which the husband is meant to be the head and the leader and the wife uh, working in cooperation with him and following his leadership. And 1 Corinthians 11 talks about is, you know, God the Father is the head of, of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, the man is the head of the woman, that God's order, especially in the family, but it's also in the church, is for there to be an appropriate, loving male leadership with God's perfect love for his people, Christ's perfect love for his church as the picture of that. And then the wife following her husband's loving leadership is pictured by the church. I think you know, we'll probably get into this further, but both roles can be distorted. You know, that's my understanding is this was God's design from creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 also that the woman was, the man was not made for the woman's sake, but the woman was made for the man's sake, that she was made to be a, a helper to him as he fulfills the creation mandate. But because of the fall, there was the warning in Genesis 3:16, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the husband, instead of being a loving, sacrificial, Christ-like leader, is tempted to be a bully, to use his strength inappropriately in a domineering, sinful way. And the wife is tempted to resist that and to try to take over, and thus we get marriage counseling mm -hmm. and a lot of it, the problems that take place within marriage. Well, because I'll be covering the topics of adultery and sexual sin in upcoming episodes of the Hope and Help Project, I'd really like to spend our time together today focusing on a particular kind of marriage relationship, one that is hurting and perhaps even withering without any major catastrophic causes to put a finger on. Some marriages, after the honeymoon phase wears off, begin to become lukewarm, and even perhaps over time, they become cold and distant. Based on your experience, what are some of the reasons married couples find themselves in a place of mundane marital indifference, and what can be done to avoid it? 
Yeah, I think this is something as I've gotten older that has impacted me and that 35 years ago, I would have never imagined so many of my friends from college and young adulthood or church members, you know, who had been seemed to have solid marriages and committed to the Lord would wind up not just with unhappy marriages, but actually wind up separation and divorce. And I've thought a lot about, well, how did this happen? And actually, one of the passages that I use in the book to describe what goes wrong is Proverbs 24. But my, what actually happened is I was invited to speak at a wedding, and I was so burdened about the neglect of marriage kind of after the honeymoon phase that I chose what I think may have been the first time this passage had been used in all the history of the church in 2,000 years as a wedding text which was Proverbs 24, 30 to 34, which is the sluggard's field. I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. And I think many marriages are like the sluggard's field. And since we moved from Southern California to North Carolina, we drive out in the country here for various purposes. And you see agriculture and you see places where there are uh, red barns, newly painted, standing up straight, fields full of crops and neat rows, and it all looks good. And then you'll go another mile down the road and you'll see the farmer who has the barn that's the paint is peeling it's beginning to bend a little bit uh, from lack of care the field has a kind of a mixture of weeds and maybe some crops trying to grow from previous years and it's all a mess you think well what happened and how did the beautiful barn and field become the sluggard's field and it's just through neglect gradually over time i've actually read this passage to counselees before without much explanation initially and asked, do you get it? Do you see why I read this passage? And yeah, that uh, the neglect of putting forth the effort in the relationship in terms of loving each other, I think is a huge factor that you get all wrapped up in kids, hobbies, work, and don't put in the effort to care for the marriage. You know, Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you with along with all malice. I think what can happen in many marriages is you have two sinners coming together that we're tempted to look at the other person as the big sinner. We're tempted to be judgmental. We're tempted to pursue the relationship as if we were lawyers or judges uh, looking down upon the other person for not pulling their weight, for not meeting our needs, for not meeting our expectations in marriage. Because they are sinners, we, can, we will see real sin. We will have some justification in our own sinful hearts for uh, the temptation to bitterness. And so when you feel like you're getting a bad deal in marriage and you feel the other person isn't trying hard enough, then instead of turning towards them to try to make it better, one is tempted to turn away from them. And this too is kind of like the weeds in the garden back to the sluggard's field is the little weeds of, uh, you know, someone tries to engage in conversation. One tries to initiate a date or time together. One time tries to initiate intimacy and the other 
doesn't respond, you know, or a slight, you know, you feel that your partner disrespected you in front of other people or that they're not really sensitive to your needs. And these are like the weeds in the garden, except for you're, you're planting ugly thorn bushes and what could be plucked out with two fingers when it initially springs up that it over time grows up to this horrible, ugly thorn bush, which takes over your entire garden or your entire field. And so I think the lack of grace, the lack of dealing with each other as you know, graciously as God has dealt with us, which is Ephesians 4.32, this is be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's after we're told to put off all the anger, slander, malice, etc. Failing to live out the gospel which would be showing grace and forgiveness for the sins and shortcomings of the other person instead of being judgmental. But it's also treating them better than we think they deserve, as God has treated us infinitely better than we deserve, and initiating in love and kindness and grace and, and putting the effort in. So you know, we get back to why are people lazy? It's not just they get all wrapped up in other things, but it's also their own sinfulness uh, tempts them. And Ephesians 5, 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give, the, give the devil an opportunity. So he's out there sowing tares. He's out there sowing thorn bushes in your field. And when there is unresolved conflict, unresolved anger, even if it, you're not still arguing about it three days later, but if, if your hearts are not united, if it's not resolved, if you're embittered, uh, the weeds, the thorn bushes just keep growing over time. And so, again, you, now to the solution, the solution is grace. The solution is, you know, seeking forgiveness where you're wrong, getting the log out of your own eye, Matthew 7. The solution is if you believe your spouse has wronged you and you've gotten the log out of your eye, Galatians 6, 1, to, you know, if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you'll be tempted not to let, you know, to, to be a person who has absolute hatred and contempt for weeds, so that when there's something wrong between you, if it's yours, you pull it. If it's theirs, you help them pull it. You're committed to eradicating the weeds, which are going to keep the flowers and the strawberries or whatever you want to grow from growing. And then you also commit to taking the time to plant the flowers and the strawberries and in the context of a, a loving and gracious relationship where you can really enjoy each other. I know I've gone on for a long time, but the positive side, it's not just pull the weeds, but it's also plant the flowers. Ecclesiastes 9.9 9 says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, in your toil, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And so God wants us to really bring each other great happiness in all the years, in all the days of our marriages. But it, it comes with pulling the weeds, but also planting the, the flowers. Communication also is a really difficult topic sometimes for marriages. And I know it's something that my husband and I have had to work on. Do you find that communication between husband and wife can act as a barometer of the relationship? Yeah, Christine, I think that the failures in communication really parallel what we've been talking about, about the neglected sluggards feel that it's bad communication in terms of statements of judgment. James 4 says we should not judge each other. God is judge. You know, being hypercritical, failing to affirm what should be affirmed, or just not making effort like the lazy sluggard, you know, not pouring into your marriage and just taking it for granted. And so I actually have a theory about communication techniques, and that is every single one of them works, and that if a couple has decided we're going to sit down and make effort to talk, whether you're writing letters to each other or 
answering questions that some counselor gave you, you know, or taking a walk and taking turns talking. Any effort is going to make things better, and the communication fails primarily due to lack of effort. But I would also say that going back to what we were talking about before, that if there has been bitterness and you've got all these weeds and thorn bushes in your marital garden, the first part of communication has to be to work together to pull the weeds. And pulling the weeds together means even where you've sinned, I want to help you pull the weed because I long to be reconciled with you. I long to be forgiven. I long to get this weed or this thorn bush out of our relationship. But yeah, if, if your relationship is full of bitterness and unforgiveness, then that's where it has to start. Then the enjoying communication is the flowers part. Uh, one nice thing about the empty nest that Carol and I are enjoying, especially since we moved to Charlotte, is we get a lot of time you know, in the evenings, we'll go for a walk and we just talk, talk, talk. And those are flowers in the garden. And we each have lots we want to talk about to the other. And in every case, part of it would be me understanding that her desire to talk, her desire to hear about my day may be greater than mine, but I find joy in knowing that I'm helping to fulfill her in those areas. And so those, those are the flowers, I guess. So that would be a start. It won't take very long for a newlywed couple to find out that they've married a sinner, just like you've mentioned a few moments ago. And sure, the idea that our spouse will wrestle with sin nature is one thing, but to see it up close and personal and to possibly even experience hurt as the result of our spouse's sin can really damage the relationship, especially if we aren't prepared to handle the hurt through a biblical peacemaking process. So how can couples work through the various kinds of hurts they will cause each other without letting bitterness take root, like you mentioned. Yeah, I think the beginning of being able to resolve conflicts is to be genuinely humble. You know, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul can say in 1 Timothy 1, he says, you know, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief or foremost. He doesn't say whom I, I was chief. He says, even now I recognize what a great sinner I am. And I think is we have self-awareness in terms of my own heart, my own selfishness, my own pride. It would keep us from having a stance of superiority and judgment against our spouse and also a willingness. You know, when Jesus, we know very well in Matthew 7, Jesus says, before you can take the splinter out of your brother's eye, you've got to be willing to take the log or logs out of your own eye. And, and in one sense, in, in terms of meeting with people, I can tell people this from the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit has to work in somebody's heart to humble them. There's just kind of a dual thing going here where we have the responsibility to humble ourselves before God, and I can plead with somebody based on the Scriptures to do that. We've got plenty of reason to do that. And yet sometimes, I mean, your spouse may be proud and may not be willing to admit they have fault, and that's going to limit how far they're going to go in this exercise. Now, what Jesus says is perfectly wise, and it may God may use it to help, and that you begin, where you may be frustrated and say, well, my spouse doesn't admit what they're wrong. They think they're always right, and you have to realize that God knows what's true. That's what really matters, is what he thinks, not what your spouse thinks is most important, but also that you two are a sinner, and it might be that if you would humble yourself and acknowledge your sin, when the temptation will be to say, if I admit I'm wrong, he'll just think he's more right, and I don't want to justify that ridiculous thought, but just trust God and say, you know, I admit that, you know, I see these things that I've done, that I've spoken to you in an unkind way, that I've 
pulled away when I should have gone towards you, that I've, you know, whatever you're going to confess, the Lord may use that to soften them. Humility is very attractive, uh, and the Lord may use your humble service towards them, as Paul says in Romans 12, to kind of pour some hot coals on their head to bring them to some conviction that they need to be willing to humble themselves as well. Likewise, you know, when we see a spouse as a sinner, it is an opportunity to show them grace and to do them good. I know in many marriages, you know, you, like what you said in the beginning, Christine, is kind of typical what people say is that I never knew what a sinner I was until I got married. It's a little more alarming when you're saying, I never knew what a sinner she was until I got married to her, that some of that's going to happen. Just living in close quarters like that is, you know, you're going to see that sin. Sometimes it's such things that, wow, if I'd have known that, I'm not sure whether I would have married him. <laughs> this is where now that you're married, assuming they're not, you know, serious matters that could go on to the divorce stuff, if there's an unrepentant, horrible yeah. thing going on. But in general, to say, okay, what does God do with me, the sinner? Romans 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so how can I, Galatians 6, 1, restore my brother or my sister help to help them? And I think to come alongside, as it says, gently, spiritually, with you know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., to say, I really want to help you. And, and I'll be very specific. So a woman gets married to a guy, and she learns in their marriage that he sometimes looks at porn. And she's angry. She's saying, if, if I knew this was as much of a problem as I now realize it is, I might not have married you. Uh, well, she can come into posture of, of judgment, and she could be tempted to be embittered. Or she can come alongside him, not just as a husband, but as a brother, and say, I love you. I want this marriage to work. I, I, I'm not going to condemn you for this. I, I want to help you fight this. I want to help you put off what is destroying you and to, to put on Christ and to put on the blessings of marriage. And to come alongside like that, you know, as a, a friend and a helper to help and to restore. Uh, we, we tend to run when people come at us in judgment. So I think that um, you know, one place would be when you discover things you may wish weren't there, then how can I help restore you knowing myself to be the chief of sinners? And I agree with what you also said is that it is very destructive to sweep problems under the rug. One of the, as I began our podcast, that looking back over people I knew 20 years ago who had marriages that seemed a little rough, but you thought, well, they're committed Christians. I'll work it out. And now one of them is separating or divorcing. That these thorn weeds become thorn bushes, and they need to be taken as you know. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity. That sweeping things under the rug, you're going to get a very lumpy rug. Mm. And the problem is they're going to grow under the rug. It's not it's not dust you're sweeping under there. It's monsters that are going to grow right. <laughs> and take over your house. Uh, and it, it, it gives, grieves me even now sometimes in counseling to see a couple fairly early in their marriage, and one of them is usually the husband, is, is kind of unwilling to take his problem seriously. And the wife is just desperate to be closer, to resolve things. And I fear a day will come when she too will become embittered and it'll be much worse than it is now. And so 
I use that picture in my mind to plead with people now while there is hope to do everything they can to you know, resolve the problems and to, to, to actively confess sin, to actively show grace and to help each other so that nothing will be between them. But what about the relationships that seem to be teetering on the edge of separation or divorce? The ones where maybe some attempts have been made to work things out, but the problems just seem to cycle round and round in a slow and painful downward spiral. At what point should a couple seek marriage counseling? And what would be a wise way to go about doing that? First of all, I would say that when Caroline and I do pre-marriage counseling with a couple, we ask them to make an informal prenuptial agreement, which would be that if either one of them thinks they need counsel, that the other one will agree to go. Uh, it's often when the situation happens that one is resistant, but just, you know, in the, in the before they get married, they just agree. If it's sometime in the future, either one of us thinks there's a problem serious enough that we can't get by without help, then we, we're both agreeing now we will get the help. Uh, this is why it's very important, obviously, to marry a believer and for you as believers to be in a godly church where there are elders who have been appointed by Christ as shepherds, and there are older women like Titus II describes who care for and I would say kind of shepherd the younger women. So God has established the structure of the local church with godly, mature uh, leadership to help you when there are problems with advice, for, which is the greatest wisdom, infinitely greatest wisdom there is, which is God's Word, which restores the soul and enlightens the eyes. And there's no problem you're going to have in marriage to which the Bible doesn't speak powerfully and helpfully. The other advantage of being in a church is that if one partner is reluctant to go to counseling, the wife has the right in the process, as we know in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, you know, if the husband, let's say, is you know, comes home at night and drinks beer and plays video games and the wife feels neglected, and she can go to him and say, I'm really concerned about this and I'm concerned the effect it's having on our marriage. And if he blows her off, she has the right to go to church leadership to say, we need help. And he as a church member is, is explicitly agreed to be accountable to the leadership of the church, Hebrews 13, 17, to submit to their God-given authority. And so you, you've got a structure in place where if you get stuck, you can force the issue. Uh, in counseling, the hardest situations I find is when a couple faces a crisis and they're spiritually homeless, uh, where they're not in a church, they're not members, they don't have, or they're in a church that doesn't do biblical counseling. They're in a church where uh, they might outsource to people who don't even do biblical counseling. So it's so important that a couple be in a, a godly church, preaches the word, worships in spirit and in truth, but has biblically qualified leaders who can help them if they do get into a place where there is trouble, and to do so early, not when one of them is already on the verge of divorce. There was one time I was contacted by a reader who felt helpless about her husband's anger problem. She said she thought he needed to get help and that he was possibly even depressed, but he would get angry every time she brought it up and simply refused any outside help. What counsel would you offer to spouses in this situation where they are front and center looking at a huge sin of their spouses and their partner outright refuses any kind of help or counsel? The first thing I would want to know, you're talking about the woman whose husband is angry, that there's a difference between 
an angry husband and an abusive husband. And I would wonder, how is that anger manifesting itself? Is it manifesting it in, this, in a way that is destructive to her, dangerous to her, dangerous to the children? And that would have a, a big impact on how I would handle this. I'm very concerned in the area of anger and abuse. Usually it's with men, although I've counseled with abusive women as well. But I'm concerned that there's kind of a pendulum that can swing in one of two extremes. I think in the past, when there has been a great anger, which has expressed itself through verbal threats, through coercion, uh, through being overly controlling financially and relationships, the things that were way beyond the pale, nothing of what headship was given. Men are abusing the idea that they're heads to be sinful dictators. Some have called it hyper-headship. And I think sometimes churches have failed to take this seriously enough when someone comes for counsel. And so if a woman is in that position, then you know, that husband needs to be addressed firmly. Uh, you know, she has the right to go to church leadership, which often the, the angry or abusive husband is telling her she cannot do, which is another misuse of his authority because the Bible gives her that right to be shepherded and get help. So th there, on one hand, I'm concerned that you know, that women, it's usually the wife, where there's an angry husband and she feels, yes, there's a sense in which she is unsafe. And it's not merely, there doesn't have to be blood and broken bones and bruises for this to happen. There can be threats, uh, again, hyper control that's way beyond what's appropriate for a husband where she has every right to get help, whether he agrees or not. And depending on the degree of the problem, it could result in church discipline. It could result in her and the children temporarily being someplace safe with the hope that the husband will come to his senses and repent. You'd still want to restore the marriage. So that's on the one hand. There's another extreme where there are, again, I've seen it mainly with women, where the least hint or sniff of anger, you know, a raised voice overly critical, grumpy, they're almost looking for a chance to call it abuse and to file divorce immediately. And that's not right either. Now, you know, there's kind of a scale, uh, you know, one extreme to the other. I've also seen cases where I've been concerned that with what I would say is ordinary marital conflict, one spouse is looking for a way out. And God has called some of us to live in hard marriages. That's what First Peter 3, 1 and 2 are about. I don't think where it says a wife is without a word, you know, to try to win her husband. I don't think that means without a word while she's being beaten and horribly mistreated. But I do think you may have a husband who's not fulfilling all of your needs, who's not attentive, who's not engaging. Uh, it may be a husband who's depressed and distant. And I think we should, you know, she should strive to love him and show him grace. Again, if she's unsafe, that's another issue. But I think some people in hard marriages are looking for an excuse, and that concerns me as well. Now, in terms of, you know, you, there can be other issues as well, drinking, porn, other things going on where the, the sinning spouse refuses to get help. And I think we've already talked about that some, where you have the right, if you're in a church, to get help from the church with faith that when the Bible says you go to your brother if he won't listen to you, you bring others, that God will use the means the Bible says we're supposed to use. And I've seen cases where one spouse is misbehaving, and then when the 
wife goes to the elders and the elders approach the guy and offer discipleship and accountability. Just the fact that they've come in a caring way, but also there's an implicit threat of if you don't pay attention to us, this can go further in a way you will not like in terms of church discipline, that the Lord uses that sometimes to shake somebody up, get their attention, and put them back on track of, of discipleship. So the, the hardest situation goes back to what I was saying before. If you're, if you're married to someone who is not a church member, is not accountable to anyone, probably you need to seek godly counsel from your own pastor and godly women in the church, Titus 2, to, you know, how should I navigate and even in terms of, is this ordinary marital conflict where I'm in First Peter 3, 1 and 2, and I just pray that God over time will help me to endure and to show grace to this person, that God may use that grace to change them? Or am I in a dangerous situation where I need to get out? Or am I in the middle where I might need a plan in case things get worse? And it would you know, there's such a, a range of situations, and that's why we all need wisdom. And only God can change a heart. Counsel is a means of, that God uses as the Word comes and it transforms people. But it, the Lord has to accompany the Word with the Spirit. And so there are cases, and I'm dealing with one now, where one spouse just don't doesn't think they have a problem. The other spouse is suffering terribly. And you know, so we're counseling the spouse who is suffering, trying to give her biblical wisdom of how to deal with it. We're pleading with the spouse who is not taking his problem seriously but we can't change him. We're praying that God will work and we're monitoring the situation also to make sure that she and her children are safe. Well, based on what I've read in your book, it's not all that uncommon for spouses to go looking for reasons they might qualify for divorce from their spouse. I've actually heard someone say that they had prayed their spouse would commit adultery so that they would have a biblical out to end the relationship. Of course, my heart breaks for these situations because I know how hard committing to reconciliation can be. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but would you offer us maybe some wise biblical counsel about how the Bible approaches the topic of divorce and perhaps touch on why it is such a hotly debated topic in the church? In Matthew 19, Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man separate. And it's very important that you as a believer do not want to be the person that causes a marriage to break up. If the unbeliever leaves, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let him leave. Then you didn't cause it. God has called us to peace, he says. If the other person commits adultery and will not repent, and you know, they, they go off with someone else, well, you did not break what God has joined. And, and so it's, it's tragic. It's painful. Um, but you don't want to be the one to cause the separation. The, the wife who says, I wish my husband would do something, and sometimes I wish he would hit me. I've even known of a wife trying to provoke her husband to hit her, again, so that she would then have an excuse to move out. And this is a heart problem more than a behavior problem in terms of does she have a heart of compassion for the man whom God has given her as husband, yearning for his repentance, yearning even to do good to him as God has done good to her, and, you know, to show grace to her. Uh, I was thinking this morning about Philippians 2, about how Christ you know, gave up his rights and was made one of us and suffered, you know, served and suffered. And then, that, but the preceding passage is how we should consider others more important than ourselves. So is this person who wants out, 
are they really striving by the grace of God to reflect gospel kindness, mercy, and help to the person, or are they self-centered in really adopting a very worldly perspective on their marriage? You know, the question is, what would God have you do? And it's not just stay married, but it's show grace and kindness to your spouse in the hope that God would use that to make your marriage one that glorifies God. So I, I am concerned. We're told not to be conformed to this world in Romans 12, and I'm deeply concerned that as the world has moved towards the idea that if you're not happy in marriage, it's perfectly fine just to ditch, to get out and move on, that that has infiltrated the church. And there are many people being advised by unbelieving family members or, you know, people on television and talk, you know, that they give up too easily. And so the, the, the ultimate question is, according to the scriptures, what would God have you to do? But also not, not just divorce or not, but how would God have you treat this person to whom you're married, uh, to show kindness, grace. What can you do? Romans 12, 18, as far as it's possible for you to be at peace with all men. What can you do? What everything possible can you do to try to save this marriage rather than looking for a reason to pursue something that God hates? Well, there may be a spouse listening today who is living in a hurting marriage. The problems in their marriage in and of themselves seem small enough, but over time they have mounted to a huge backlog of painful hurts and unspoken words. Resentment resides in the home and bitterness is the undercurrent of their conversations. The flame of passion has dwindled and sometimes they believe they are too far gone for God's restoration. What would you say to that person to give them the courage necessary to reach out for help and to fight for their marriage? First, I would say that my heart breaks for you. Uh, the Lord has blessed me, not with a perfect marriage, but almost 40 years of a, a marriage. We've been partners in a team, and I think we have brought happiness to each other. And it grieves me to be with people who or maybe because they're Christians, they're hanging in there, but they feel really stuck. And in one sense, they feel like that other person is their enemy rather than their friend. Uh, I had a case recently of uh, a couple. Actually, I've had multiple cases of couples who were ironically even involved in vocational ministry, and yet they were pretending to the world. And, and in the home, there was uh, they were like enemies. And yet I also can offer hope is that I've seen in those very cases, the gospel has done amazing things where it, through biblical counsel even helped them to realize, to understand the deep sadness of the person, the deep yearning the other person has to experience love and grace within the marriage. Uh, I've seen virtually every imaginable scenario restored by the grace of God. The gospel is powerful to change. I've, I've referenced Psalm 19 before, how the word of God restores the soul and lightens the eyes, that uh, God's word does, as John Frame says, what only God can do. And so God can take a really bad situation, and a lot of it would be what we've already talked about in terms of your, your field is infested with thorns and weeds and thorn bushes, and it can seem overwhelming if you're looking at your yard and it's nothing but that. But God wants that marriage, that yard to look better, your garden to be better, and he can help you. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be harder to do the wrong thing than to do what pleases God. And so God is able to bring restoration. Now, that's under the assumption you're praying that the Lord would work in your spouse to 
you know, work with you on that. But you begin, you start, and maybe your spouse who also feels hopeless and unloved, that's one thing you want to do is consider how does it feel to be them? What is their pain? What is their what what dreams of theirs have been shattered? What loneliness do they feel? And have compassion for them and try to offer them help they don't deserve necessarily and try to bring hope back into the marriage. It may be that you, you've tried that, you feel like you've tried that, and you're not getting anywhere. And that's where I, I can take you to the fact, thankfully, that marriage is not the ultimate experience in life. Jesus said, this is life to know you, to know the Father, to know Christ. And in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8, we're told, if you trust in men, you, know, you put your hope in men, you'll be like the bush in the desert. But if you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by rivers of water. And that if your spouse is not committed to your marriage, or if your spouse abandons you, or if you're having to live in a hard marriage, praying that it will change, but it's not changing this week or this month or maybe this year, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But it does mean that God is sufficient for us not merely to survive, but to flourish, that not to be dependent upon even upon our spouse to bring your your ultimate satisfaction, but to realize that as you uh, feed upon God and His Word and you know Christ, that you will be able to endure and even to an extent flourish in spite of the fact your spouse isn't flourishing. And and I would encourage you to, you want to be in a solid church and to go get, you know, go be discipled yourself, go try to get help with the hope that God may do far beyond what you could ask or imagine. Well, those are really encouraging words, Jim. Thank you so much for sharing them today. If there's somebody listening who would like to learn more about your ministry, your counseling, your your works and writing, where do you think would be the best place that they could go to find out various teachings and articles that you have offered in the past? Sure. Actually, as you bring that up, I'm thinking I should probably have one centralized website that I don't have. But <laughs> um, right now, my main job is I teach for Reformed Theological Seminary in a biblical counseling program in Charlotte. It's rts.edu, and then you can look for the biblical counseling in Charlotte. I'm also the executive director of IBCD. The website is ibcd.org, and I think we have probably the most extensive website of free resources for biblical counseling on the internet. About probably half of it is me and half of it is other people. There are audios and outlines and training and courses and virtually every topic I've brought up today, there are several audios that address those in terms of bitterness and conflict and resolution. There's a s- series there on biblical peacemaking, especially a four-part series that would be very appropriate. And also there's some audios by Dave Harvey, who wrote When Sinners Say I Do, which uh, address, you know, showing grace to each other in marriage in spite of the fact you're both sinners. And then the books you can find, um, I have an unusual last name. So if you look for Jim Neuheiser on Amazon, you'll see a whole bunch of books and booklets there and hopefully more coming. Absolutely. Well, I will be sure to uh, list all of the links to the resources that you just mentioned, and I would just be a testimony to those resources that I have exhausted the IBCD audios that are available for free. They are just all excellent and strongly recommend. In fact, if you are an email subscriber of mine, you know that usually about once a week you get at least one bit of IBCD content in the emails because they are so valuable and helpful. Well, Jim, thank you so much again for joining us today and talking about this topic. 
topic. I really appreciate you taking the time to share some biblical wisdom and some some practical insights as well. Sure, it's been my pleasure, Christine, and uh, thankful that you're seeking to bring help and truth from the Word of God to many people, and I pray God's blessing upon your efforts. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Jim's books and resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.